Saint Therese usually joins. Just talk us as, as you well, go, Father so. Baron, and I'll get your levels and make sure it's all good. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Actually, looks pretty good. Those levels are perfect. You're a natural. I am a natural <laughs> behind the microphone. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. We talked about this in your class the other day, that you get asked a lot, especially by Protestants, what is the gospel? Just flat out. And it was, yeah. I until I came to Mundelein, even amongst Catholics, I had always heard it as a very mechanical, like these yeah. words right. are the gospel. But we talked about yeah. God became man so that men could become God. Yeah. And that to me is like just an electric statement yeah. of the gospel. Did you say that, by the way, in Clint, when I said, hey, what's the gospel? And I did. I you did. Because I was very gratified by that. Because I think it's extremely important that the Protestants will often say to us, well, you don't know what the gospel is. And you don't have a gospel. You have a, you have a news of you know more laws and rules and stuff. Mm. So what is the liberating view? And that's it. That's the gospel. Well, because before, when I had always heard um, whatever type of gospel presentation, it came down to words and a formula that you submitted to, and then you were saved or you were on your way to salvation or whatever. But that, to me... I, I think I heard it originally from you, honestly, maybe in my first year, and it stuck with me of if I had to give the gospel in a sentence, that is it, because it that's what transforms us um, at the end of the day. That's what I was seeking anyway, and it finally clicked in my own mind, my own heart. But I was curious, too, of what's your experience, even amongst faithful Catholics, is that what they desire? Like, do we, do they get that when they hear that? God became man so that men could become God. Do they understand that? Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. If you ask the typical Catholic, um, see, they probably do get it, but in a more implicit way. Because probably a typical Catholic would say something like, I, I need to go to Mass. I need to receive the Blessed Sacrament. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. well, That's a very deep instinct that's precisely along those lines because what you're receiving is the sacramental presence of of the one who became human that we might become divine and we get divinized precisely by taking in the divine life through the sacraments Mm -hmm. so the catholic instinct that somehow i belong at mass i need to go to mass like in the seven story mountain when those my favorite parts of that book when merton is just kind of awakening to catholicism and he said he woke up one sunday morning with this overwhelming impulse go to mass go to Mm -hmm. and he wasn't a catholic yet he apparently knew what mass meant but he, he goes to this church. It's still there, Corpus Christi on 115th Street. And uh, he walked in and he genuflected on the wrong leg. I mean, he did everything wrong. But he had this this deep impulse, go to Mass. Yeah. And that's the Catholic thing because that's where the divine life is. So go get it. Go get it. Yeah. <laughs> go now. <laughs> and then Merton says afterwards, though, he barely understood what was going on. He has coffee in this little coffee house. And he said, I'm in this grimy diner but I felt like I was sitting in the Elysian fields. Mm. And see, that, that's, that was a moment of, of breakthrough, but it's a very mm. Catholic moment mm-hmm. of liturgy, sacraments, the divine life. Um, so I, my guess is, to answer your question, most Catholics would have some version of that, which is close to Deus fit homo, at homo fiera Deus, mm-hmm. right? That, that is the gospel they're looking for. 
Or like that story I, that Jim Quigley, this great priest of the Knack, always tells about when he's distributing communion at, at St. Peter's Square, which I've done a couple times. And the extraordinary sea of people surge up to you. There's no order to it whatsoever. It's very Italian. <laughs> and they all surging up. And you're Corpus Christi, Corpus Christi. And people are just stretching their hands out, you know, mm. and then Padre, Padre, per favore, Padre. <laughs> that there's something wonderful in that moment. Now, yeah. who, who knows what they're thinking precisely? It might just be, hey, here I am in St. Peter's. I want one of those. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? But there's something very deep in that. Right. Of, of, I'm starving for the divine life, and that's where it is. Yeah, that's what, it, that's what I meant, is that that gave a hunger in myself, words. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I could yeah. say it, and it made sense. Yeah. You At wanted, least more so. Because you wanted much more than to be a good person. So there's exactly. the Kantian thing. Religion's about ethics. Mm-hmm. It's about being a nice person. Our version of that is, I'm dedicated to social justice. That's our Kantianism today. Is That's what religion does. It makes you more attuned to social justice. Um, okay, fine, fine. But that's not what your soul wants. Your soul wants deification. Now, deification leads to social justice. Of course it does. Because... Mm-hmm. To become conformed to the divine life, what's the divine life? Love. God loves everything he's made. You know what I mean? So all that fits together, but it's that flattened out version of it that is not going to feed people. You know That totally squares with my experience, too, when I was in college. And I had sort of the seeds of a deeper faith planted in me by my father, who we read the Gospel of Luke together, and I had an experience of uh, confession that was very profound when I was in high school. But those things were just kind of laying dormant in me. Until yeah. I went to the Newman Center at Illinois, and just I mean, the fr- I wrote about it in my Bridge editorial, uh, I think for my last one before I was ordained, that uh, in relation to the new chapel and the power of beauty, because when I walked into that chapel down there, very s- simple in its beauty, but powerful, and it was the first time I'd ever smelled incense mm-hmm. or seen any of these kind of things, and it was just the right time of day. It was like the golden hour; the light was pouring through these stained glass windows, and I felt like. I don't know what's going on here, but I want to be here. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started going to daily mass, started regularly going to confession, joined a Bible study. And it was this hunger for uh, that I couldn't say what, but I found myself, you know, running from class that got out a little late in flip-flops to get to noon mass on a Thursday. And I thought to myself, what am I doing? <laughs> what happened? with me? <laughs> right. And right. I wasn't thinking about priesthood at the time. It was yeah. just, I want that. And it later on, I mean, it became much more clear to me what God was doing. And, and in fact, thinking about that memory on the cusp of priesthood ordination was really powerful because it was when God captured my imagination for the first time, maybe, that uh, this is what it's like to dwell in my house. Yeah. And you belong here in this specific capacity. Yeah. But we all do. It's the Eucharist always has that effect. Exactly. It? And in all the saints... I just I met this guy over in England. Um, gosh, what's his name now? The great C.S. Lewis scholar wrote the book called Planet Narnia. Mm-hmm. Does that ring a bell? It's a really interesting book. On he reads the Narnia books in this very creative way. Anyway, he'd been an Anglican priest, and he underwent this conversion and became a Catholic. You know, so I asked him a little bit about that. You know, what was it? And what it came down to was daily mass. It was just the power of daily mass mm-hmm. and the Eucharist that drew him. And that's always the case. That's the Merton thing. It's like this, whatever that weird instinct was, he wasn't a Catholic. Right. Go to Mass. Go to Mass. That's where you're going to find the divine life. I saw myself a lot in Merton, not to, you know. Whose I, 100th I, birthday is coming up, by the way? Is it January 30th? He was right? born in ni- 1915. So there's been a, there's a new interest in Merton, 100 
hundred years. But even his life at Columbia, where he had this yeah. teacher that was a mentor, right. and I had a priest that was really intelligent and was teaching me philosophy and and just kind of midwifing me through this metanoia that I was having. Yeah. Um, and just the hunger of it, kind of having one foot still in the old man, and but this hunger for God made me for something. He has a crown to put on my head if I just kneel down and accept it. Um, but there's yeah. a re- there's a rebellion in that. Eight, I mean, yeah. you're eight, 20 years old, 19 years old. There's a certain, but like we said earlier, it was realizing in the littleness, in the little ways that I would surrender to God and allow Him to bless me in my in the yes that I could give Him, whatever it was. Go to mass, go to confession, um, pray five minutes every day before the Blessed Sacrament. Just little things, and then little by little. Uh, you get the habit of saying yes to God, and then He asks you something big, and yeah. then you're prepared to say yes, and that's that's what happened to me. Yeah, like that was with Merton too. That little by little he was saying these yeses, and then he goes to Gethsemane and he sees this place, and it was an invitation more than anything else. It was an invitation from God Himself. After this long train ride, it's hot as heck. He gets there, and he says, "I belong here." Yeah, yeah, and it was uh, his friend. Um from Columbia, not uh, Mark Van Doren, but um, Walsh was his first name. The, the, he became a priest himself eventually. But Merton's looking at different orders, you know, which one to join. And he spoke of the Trappist. And it, it caught fire in Merton because he said, I, I want to give everything to God. And th- and so he was on this this trajectory that happens a lot with the saints. Not that Merton was a saint. I don't think he was. But um, I, I want to do everything. Uh, I choose all the little flower. I want <laughs> right. both crowns. You know, I want to do everything for God, and that's what led him to uh, to get somebody. Yeah, because he was a Franciscan for a while, or a novice. He tried. Yeah, he he applied to the Franciscans, and they found out about. Or he told them about his previous life. You know, mm-hmm. and it it's not clear in the Seven Story Mountain, but later it became clear that you know he had a child and was during when he was in England, and the, mm-hmm. the mother and child were killed during the Blitz and. Back in those days, especially, it was seen as highly scandalous, and so mm. they turned him down from the Franciscans. It broke his heart. But look at Saint Augustine, geez. yeah, right, <laughs> right. Who wouldn't get in the seminary today, probably? Right. But uh, <laughs> you know, and not in your seminary. Maybe a judgment on us, but um, but it, it broke Merton's heart. But it, it set him on this different exactly. path that led him to the Trappists eventually, and uh, then he found he found this extraordinary spiritual home there, and it became very fruitful spiritually and everything. But yeah, his hundredth anniversary is coming up, which is worth. That was a beautiful using. book. I, I don't know if I told. You, I just finished it. I think last year as a. Deep the Seven Story Mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was one of the great books of my life when I was a teenager. Um, that book had a huge impact on me, mm-hmm. and it's full of romanticism. It's someone falling in love with God. Yeah. And so it's a love story, and it's full of typical. It's a lot of the gushing romance of that experience, which is analogous, as, you know, as, as we all know, in many ways to falling in love with a human being. Um, but it's more dramatic. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's more exciting in many ways, and that's what I got caught up in when I wrote. It was almost to me like Augustine's Confessions translated into yeah, like a World War Two era. Yes, and Sheen saw that. Mm-hmm. Fulton Sheen's famous uh, blurb for that book when it first came out was just that: that this is a modern day Confessions, and someone will look at this book and they'll know what it was like to live in this you know in this terrible time, nineteen thirties and forties. But it is like Augustine's Confessions. Mm-hmm. You know, as existential as Augustine's Confessions. Um, and wonderfully written. Yeah. You know. I read a lot of Thomas Merton when I was young, too. 
Did that's you? Not, no, that's not true. No, is it? I don't know if anybody <laughs> reads a lot of Thomas Merton when they're young, except for maybe you and Aquinas. You right? know how? You know how? Yeah, Aquinas. But you know how I got Merton? I remembered vividly. I was working <laughs> at Crocs Mertano's Bookstore, which was a book chain here in Chicago. Area, my first job, and I was in the in the. Um, um, not the mail room, the back room. We did like, uh, like we unpacked, store room, store room, un- unpacked boxes and stuff. Well, there was a thing where if a book was a paperback and was there for a long time without being sold, you ripped the cover off of it and sent the cover back downtown or something. And then the books were just, anyone could take them. So my brother worked there as well. And so he knew I was kind of inter- getting interested in religious things. I was about 16 or 17. And um, he, he threw this book at me, a paperback without a cover. <laughs> and he said, Hey, you might like this. It's by a Trappist monk. And I said, I don't want to read a book by some Buddhist. And he said, and I quote, Trappists are Catholics, you idiot. And that's how I got the Seven Story Mountain. That's how it landed in my lap. And so I, I took it home and I, I read it. And it had this, this electric effect on me. And know? now you're the rector at Mundelein Seminary. Yeah. You know, you know. I told that story when I went to Gethsemane to give talks. It's several years ago. Um I gave talks to the monks at Gethsemane, which was kind of sobering. And I told them that story. And I said, you know, the, the effect that Merton had on me. And I recall that if you read his diaries, which are wonderful, he'll often complain when the diocesan priest would come down to give a retreat. Like, what does this guy know? Right. And I said, I feel exactly like that guy now, you know, coming to it's talk like to you. like a lampoon cartoon version of yourself. Right, right. So, but no, Merton had a big impact on me when I was, and, and throughout my years in seminary because when I was here as a student he was still a big voice and he got kind of eclipsed in, the, in let's say the 80s into the 90s and stuff not altogether rightly it seems to me I mean Merton had a kind of a strange side in some ways uh, but I think he's still massively worth reading mm-hmm. relax well, Father, one thing that you said, and even back to this, talking about celibacy a little bit, I remember that for the Pollock lecture, we had Dr. Fagerberg down from Notre Dame, yeah. and he was giving the analogy of celibacy being something like, um, almost like a pressure cooker, like a big concrete cylindrical you know, projection tube. And it seems that that can apply also to just the gospel and Christianity in general, that it allows you to kind of boil down the priorities in life so that you mm-hmm. direct all of your desires to the right thing, to the the highest thing, which is what you're talking about with all the saints. When they're grabbed by the gospel, mm-hmm. they're almost put in this pressure cooker yeah. where it's like this, it's all going straight up because yeah. I don't, there's not enough room in here for everything else. And of course, that's not to say that we're Puritans and we think everything else is bad. No, um, put, that's why the rose window is better. Because it's center, and then everything finds its place around the center. You don't have to get rid of it. You have to locate it properly. Right. You know? Well, I liked your analogy of the the riverbanks, too. I think that was in your new evangelization yeah. video. Yeah. But the, the closer that's the Newman. banks are, the more rushing the... Yeah. And that that's the direction of your... It's the direction of your desire, really. That's how I read it. Like Yeah. That if you have the power and discipline to say no to things that make demands on you, including you know bodily instincts and and career dreams and whatever... You can say no to things that you know aren't the answer. Then you can direct that one yes yeah. in a vigorous way toward. That's right. And if the good is clear in your life and the values are clear, they, they form the banks, then all the energies of your life get focused. Right. That's why, you know, the, the lazy lake, this is a Newman image. You knock down the banks, the water just becomes this big lazy lake, and we're all kind of floating on it, but no one's going anywhere. 
we're all like respecting each other and tolerating each other. Making healthy choices. Yeah, but but we're not going anywhere. <laughs> and we're not going anywhere together. That's part of the irony too is the dogmatic is what unites you because we all subscribe to this. If you get rid of the dogmatic, my little opinion, your little opinion, your little opinion, then we're separated. Mm-hmm. We're on our little worlds, floating on our little air mattresses on the lazy lake, tolerating each other, but not cooperating and moving in mission and all that. Well, that's Delubach's big thing yeah. in Catholicism is that yeah. it, I mean, it's, it's precisely this thing that we're attacking in modernity, the, the dogmatism of yeah. the medieval ages. But that, that's what made that a culture. Yes, in a, right. In an integral sense, and that when you break down those things, then what do you have? I mean, basically, it's the individual, naked individual, and in confronting the state. Yeah, which you saw in a lot of the totalitarian, yes, anti-dogmatic regimes. Because yes. something will move into the vacuum. Newman right. saw that. If you get rid of the religious, something will move into the central position, and so therefore, the totalitarianism of politics or of the ego. You got to have new dogmas, in other words. Yeah, you always do. Nature mm-hmm. pours a vacuum, so something will become dogmatic. Now it's, I'd say, toleration. That's kind of the new dogmatism: is I tolerate you, you tolerate me, um, but but we do not tolerate those who do not tolerate. Yeah, right. And we don't tolerate anybody who's proposing a vision of the good. Mm-hmm. See, that's why I, I just came in kind of rediscovering Diedrich von Hildebrand, who I read years ago, but kind of been rediscovering him, and that's his great thing: is value that these values exist. They're objective. They can be named and they can be rendered in a hierarchical way. And your life is a response to value. It's not like I'm making up as I go along. I'm deciding what I want to do. That's so boring and and directionless. It's when a value has appeared and has now impressed itself upon you and now calls for a response. What's the right response to that value? Now we're talking an interesting life, you know? Right. So that's why he calls love as a is a value response. Hmm. Uh, I give myself to this value. I conform myself to it. That's the banks of the river, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that awakens the mind, the heart, the body. Everything gets focused on the on the valuable. Well, and you th- you see that with like an Olympic athlete where yeah. they've got a value, a gold medal. I want to be the best in the world at this sport, yeah. swimming or running or skiing. And they devote. I mean, their diet is affected by it. The people they hang out with every yeah. day. I mean, absolutely everything is conditioned by this one goal. And it seems to me like, who said a saint is someone who wants one thing? Is a Kierkegaard? Kierkegaard yeah. Um, I mean, you look at people who want just one thing out of life, and if it's love, yeah, uh, God and love my neighbor, and that that's that's conditioned. Every then it's the the little way makes sense. Mm-hmm. Martyrdom makes sense. Celibacy makes sense yeah. because you want one thing, and everything else is conditioned by yeah. that decision. See, I, that's the Bible. We just in Deuteronomy six, we just came across the Shema prayer. You know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is Lord alone. Now love the Lord with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul. That clarifies things. So that's why you should mm-hmm. wear it on a, a pendant on your forehead. You should wear it, put it on your door frame, drill it into your children. Drill this into your children. I yeah. love that line. <laughs> that's, the, that's the Bible, you know? Right. That's the Bible. And uh, that's the finding the center thing. And we've lost the center in so many ways. Or it's, we put weird things in the center. But it's love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, and mind. Um and that's why, see, we're needed more than ever in our culture, I think. By we, I mean committed religious people and people with a clear religious vision. Because um, otherwise, people get increasingly lost. Mm-hmm. 
you know and so that's the secularism that's the danger um and why priests are indispensably important but you see a revival do you know yeah mm-hmm. yeah i do i do and i see it in these guys and you and and now people younger than you who are coming here um no, 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 no. We're it. We're it. There's nobody behind us. There's yeah. no behind you. You're the, <laughs> we can, we can edit that out. We can edit that out. Edit that out. <laughs> no, but I said in my homily uh, last Sunday, I really meant that about the uh, reading these autobiographies, which I'm doing for the new students coming in. Mm-hmm. Very moving to me. These guys now born in 1991 or something. Oh my gosh, he was born in 1991 when I was getting my doctorate. <laughs> he was a baby when the Bulls won their first championship. Yeah. Um, but these guys came of age all during the sex abuse scandal, all during that time, and yet they come. Mm-hmm. And they've been summoned as Samuel was summoned, and, and the Lord keeps doing that. He summoned Thomas Merton. He summoned all of us in this room in different ways. You know, My story going back to Thomas Aquinas when I was 14, your story about U of I, you know, we've all got a story. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It's weird. But, I mean, God keeps calling people. and uh, It's also cool how he connects. I mean, because uh, you think... God could save the world on his own, but he yes. uses us. Mm-hmm. He chooses to use us. And right. Like, for instance, not, not to say I knew Father Barron when, but you coming to my parish as a when I was a teenager, my dad connecting with yeah, you. Yeah, right. And, you know, his connection with you leading him deeper into uh, his conversion to Catholicism and that affecting me. And um, going back to your Fenwick professor with the five yeah. proofs and... You know, all, yeah. the scandal of particularity of the whole thing. Well, you know what you're doing there? It's, I'm just finishing a book by Paul Griffiths. Do you know that name? He's a, he's a good friend of Matt Levering's. Paul Griffiths uh, founded the um, uh, Lumen Christi thing down at the University of Chicago. Oh, yeah, he's yeah. now at Duke University. <clears throat> he's a book called Decreation, which is all about eschatology. It's a really interesting book about the last things, right? But one of his points, and you were just doing it there, is the fallen world is marked by metronomic time, time that just marches along, doot, doot. And it's marching along toward death. And death is the sign of what he calls the devastation. That the world we're living in is not the world that God wanted. It's the devastated world. Been affected, and there's a whole theory about that. Affected by the fall, by sin, and so on. But the mark of it is death. And one of the consequences of death is metronomic time. Boom, boom, boom. What you were doing there is what he calls systolic time. Time that's not just marching along, but is gathered around key events Mm. so you're sitting in this chair right now think about like he's at like a cloth that gets bunched up together Mm -hmm. bunched up you're sitting here conditioned upon your father in many ways conditioned upon my arriving at sacred heart parish in 1997 conditioned upon my hearing thomas aquinas in 1974 conditioned upon uh, that professor learning Aquinas whenever he learned him, conditioned upon Thomas Aquinas, yeah. <laughs> who lived in the 13th <laughs> right. century, conditioned right. upon Augustine, who inspired... What, what you've done there is you, you bunch time together around this central dynamism of the gospel. And that's an anticipation, he thinks, of heaven. Heaven is not a place of metronomic time, just marching along toward death, because there's no death. But it's like systolic time. And that's why, like, see, John Paul II Chapel... With all the saints, that's systolic time. Is mm-hmm. as I'm in that chapel, I'm surrounded by mm-hmm. Thomas Aquinas and the little flower, Cyril and, and Methodius, and Cyril Max Methodius, and, and and we're all gathered around the Eucharist, which is the entry of the divine into the devastation, so as to remake it as a new heavens and new earth. 
Well, isn't that central to Merton's whole thing of all of a sudden in this dirty cafe, he's yeah. sitting in this paradise. Yes, or yes. later on in his life, it was Merton, right, that was walking down the street and said the people he saw were right. shining like the sun. Yeah, which I put in the series, and we film right there at the 4th and Walnut. It's the famous experience he had. Okay. And uh, What city was it? Louisville. Louisville. He went to Louisville from Gethsemane. He's not too far. He to do like something medical with his back or something. And when he finished, he's he's in civvies, you know, he's just walking along and sees people. And it's this epiphany moment. Can't anyone tell them they're all shining like the sun? Um, and it was the, you know, his deep connection to the human race because of the incarnation. And that's systolic time. It's gathered time, you know. Well, can I ask, what is the difference, and this is kind of playing devil's advocate, so yeah. uh, what is the difference between like the gathering of systolic time with a Christian, so you can trace that all the way back to Augustine, this moment now began almost with, you know, yeah. well before us. The difference between that and, let's say, a Marxist, who's saying, following that same train of thought, it can do the same cause and effect of, oh, I'm here, I'm thinking this way because of X, Y, or Z, who's... You know, right. learned it back and back. What's the difference between that and the no, Christian? Good, it's more than just that. It's more than just I can trace things back causally. Because right. like a Marxist would keep all that within the context of metronomic time. That's we're all marching toward Blood alone death. moves the wheels of history. <laughs> yeah, and that, you know, <laughs> communism is the fulfillment of history, but that just means this new social arrangement. It doesn't mean that we've really conquered anything definitive. Okay, we just, right. So I, it's not just that. It's, it's past, present, future gathered around a transcendent truth, namely... God becoming one of us. Uh, the Lord, that's, um, Griff has always talked about God as the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps. You know, The Lord has entered into the devastation to remake it. Now, that becomes present to us sacramentally in the Eucharist. And so when we gather in the chapel around the blessed sacrament, we receive the Eucharist, boom, we're all caught up right now in this eternal moment that transcends anything in the devastation. So they didn't move it beyond just a, you know, like a Marxist reading. Well, but that's why the liturgy we're still in metronomic time. I don't, oh, yeah. want, I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah, well, at, at five, I'm going over to um, Father Presta's palace to have oh, uh, I'll be with oh, you. evening. Nice. Oh, you'll be there, of course, yeah. evening prayer with the STL guys. Then we're going out to dinner. Well, really quick, Father, I, I have one thing from what we talked about. You're on one of the hottest podcasts on the whole internet. He's in, being, he's being in humble. My, yeah. In my the mind, hottest. anyway. But we, we, it was the, you know, you said it jokingly, obviously, that like St. Augustine, you know, wouldn't get into seminary today yeah. or whatever. But, you know, if by the grace of God, someone does listen to this podcast that is considering religious life or seminary or whatever, you know, in one minute, what would you, what would you say to them wherever they're at in their story? I would say take it very, very seriously. If you're hearing that call in any way, and to get over this millennial generation hang-up of keeping my options permanently open, I see that all the time. People at your age and younger is, I want every option open all the time. So priesthood, I guess, but I got boom, 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 boom. Life is very short, I would tell people. Life is very short. It goes by like that. And if you're feeling the call of God, you take that with utter seriousness and don't treat it as one little option among many, but take it with utter, utter seriousness. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're called to be the priest, but don't treat it as one little option on the smorgasbord of life, but take it as a very serious uh, call. That's what I would say. Uh, I see so many people, young people, stuck. And, and it's because the culture is from the time they're little kids presenting them with every possible choice. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, yeah, but, but also every aspect of life, I've got every possible choice right. available to me. And so I get, 
I get stuck. I herniate on the fence of ambivalence. You know, <laughs> what do I do? But if God is calling you, um, it's time to time to move. Time to you know, like the the Blessed Mother went in haste to the whole country. She yeah. went. So I would say that it doesn't mean necessarily you're called. Maybe you're not. But take the time to discern it very seriously. Well, it seems that the Lord has called you here, and we know, you know, I'll be the one to say it. You may be trying to use Three Dogs North to reach incredible fame, like the pinnacle of, um, you know, love. You've unmasked and me, spiritual fanaticism. <laughs> You've unmasked me. So, you know, I mean, we're not saying that we're being used here, but. Uh, you're more than welcome to come back anytime. <laughs> I, no, we do want to thank you for. I'd be delighted. Coming. It was fun. I'd be delighted to come back. Really appreciate it. It's always good coming up here to Three North. That's there you right. go. And what we'll would you have? One thing to say to the crazy Three Dogs North fanatics. You mean that your followers? Our followers. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say keep listening. And tell your friends about it. I think it's a great uh, conversation <laughs> to be part of. Tell your friends and uh, join in. Cut it right there. We're That's gonna, it. Put down the we can edit this stuff so that you sound really smart. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> overcome these weird little lapses. Good. Well, thank you, Father. Thank you. Yeah, very thank much, you, Father. Three dogs north are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And down.